So I have to be honest. I really struggle with Martin Luther King Day. I struggle because I feel like so often it becomes the day that we're supposed to talk about race and racism. You know, just one day a year. That'll probably cover it, right? You might recall that last year we actually programmed a guest speaker for this day, a rabbi, who talked about Martin Luther King's legacy around economic injustice and the rights of laborers, some of the work that King was particularly engaged in when he was assassinated. So, so there's this idea that, you know, first of all, this is the day we have to talk about race, and it's just this day, right? And then the other challenge for me, that, that that's all that King talked about, race and racism. So I struggle. But the real struggle for me, I think, is because of what our national celebration of Martin Luther King Day has done, what it has become, maybe. Because of the way that our celebration of this particular holiday has sanitized the message that Martin Luther King brought, has made it kind of appealing to the masses by removing the radical and focusing on the most famous version. Now, there's nothing actually wrong with the famous version of Martin Luther King, with his most famous words. Honestly, they're pretty great. The I Have a Dream speech is sublime. It's a masterwork of rhetorical style. It's beautiful. It makes me tear up every time I read it or hear it. That dream, he talks about the dream about his four little children, about the children of former slaves and the children of former slaveholders sitting down at the table of brotherhood. That dream is what I want for America. I understand why we have taken that speech, that moment, and made it a kind of national treasure. It should be, I think. We want to have that dream, too. We want it to come true. Except, unfortunately, that it hasn't. And over time, I have become more and more convinced that our belief that it has, our belief that the dream is palpable or close somehow or real, is actually keeping us from moving nearer to it. When we cast Martin Luther King's work and his legacy in, in that table of brotherhood, in the idea of nonviolence and love, the idea that we can all just come together, we see it sometimes, we see King's voice in that time as the antithesis to the more strident voices of the time, but that is indeed just the sanitized version. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't love there in King's message. Far from it. There was love in powerful, in deeply spiritual ways. And the nonviolent action for which King is best known was born out of his intense study, his study of Gandhi and others, and out of his commitment to his understanding of the Christian story. If you've done any reading about or learning about, or if you remember because you were there, King's study in his early years, he moved to that place of nonviolent action out of deep thought, deep work. But along with that love, 
came a clear and realistic analysis of the systems of oppression. An awareness of what needed to happen to the white person's heart. It wasn't a wishy-washy kind of love, you know. It wasn't really a Hallmark version. Or if it were, I'd buy a lot more Hallmark cards, I think. It was the kind of love that is transformative of people and of systems. So if you need to be convinced, I have some radical quotes from Martin Luther King. There's actually a movement this year. It's called Reclaim, hashtag Reclaim MLK. If I tweeted, then I'd be tweeting it. If you tweet it, you can go ahead, hashtag Reclaim MLK. And, um, and it tries to get us back to some of King's more radical thoughts. The purpose of the direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. Actually, we, these are all King's words, actually we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. I think it's interesting, actually, how often we remember the nonviolent and we forget the direct action. <laughs> they all have to go together. It's one phrase. <laughs> we know, King wrote through painful experience, that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and when they fail to do this, they become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. The question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And finally, from Why We Can't Wait, published in 1964, if the Negro is still saying not enough, It is because he does not feel that he should be expected to be grateful for the halting and inadequate attempts of his society to catch up with the basic rights he ought to have inherited automatically centuries ago by virtue of his membership in the human family and his American birthright. I love me some radical king. (laughs) Now, it's not necessarily radical, right, that king called for people to have basic human rights, basic civil rights in our country. What was radical, I think, was King's continued insistence and the movement's continued insistence that the black person in his time did not yet have them. And so what I think it is ours to remember now, what I would reclaim or claim as the radical message, is the knowledge that people of color in America still don't have them. Not quite yet. I read an article in preparation for this platform, which I have been putting off for months now. Some of you might have read it. It's the long-form article on uh, reparations from The Atlantic, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Many of you recommended this article to me. And to be fair, you do recommend a lot of articles, actually. You send me emails and put them in my mailbox and tell me about them. And I don't get to all of them in the timely manner that I wish I did. But I think my delay on this one is I didn't really want to read it. I didn't really want to know more fully, even after the work I had done and the trainings I had been to, 
what that article might tell me about our history. And it is stark. The article begins with sharecropping, with lynching, with voter suppression in the South. It paints the picture of the post-Reconstruction, sort of failed Reconstruction, dream of Reconstruction, and then the Jim Crow South, a picture that many of us know. And I want to note, we sit here in D.C. on the border between the South and the North, and it's easy for us, I think, to say that it's only down below our border that these injustices have happened and happen. It's easy for us to say it has nothing to do with our northern sibling cities. Well, the article goes on to uh, follow. It starts with a man, Clyde Ross, who was born in, um, in the South and then moves up to Chicago for a different life where he encounters uh, his inability to get a mortgage because of federal housing policies, predatory practices, right, and federal housing policies, redlining policies, which made it essentially impossible for people living in African-American neighborhoods and black neighborhoods to get mortgages. And, um, and as people moved in and neighborhoods became integrated or moved from white to black, well, they just got redlined again so that it spread and spread. This man, Clyde Ross, tried to do something about it, and, and that's why his story begins this article. He um, joined the Contract Buyers League. Contract buying was what was available to African Americans in Chicago and across the country at the time, a predatory lending practice with very high interest rates and, um, and no, no forgiveness. So if you missed any, anything, you were out, you were done. You ended up paying much, much more for the house. Um, than you would have if you were white and were able to get a federally uh, insured mortgage. So he tried to do something about it. He joined with the Contract Buyers League. And, uh, and they sued the government. They sued, as um, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, they were no longer appealing to the government simply for equality. They were no longer fleeing in hopes of a better deal elsewhere. They were charging society with a crime against their community. They wanted the crime publicly ruled as such. In 1968, when the suit was brought, Clyde Ross and the Contract Buyers League were no longer simply seeking the protection of the law. They were seeking reparations. So this article looks at the concept of reparations, repairing the damage done over centuries and centuries to African Americans in this country. I, I was surprised to, to learn through this article that reparations actually were granted in small sums very early on in America's history in the 18th century. There were Quaker communities in the North who made um, providing reparations to one's freed slaves a condition for membership in the community. So you couldn't join unless you proved that not only had you freed your slaves, but you had also made reparations to them. You had provided them with a certain certain amount of money and a certain amount of land. And of course, right along with that, and then growing over the years, was, um, was uh, people against reparations. This is a, a hard uh, sentence from 1891 in the Chicago Tribune, an editorial in the Chicago Tribune, Tribune speaking against reparations. So 1891, right? They have been taught to labor... They have been taught Christian civilization and to speak the noble English language instead of some African gibberish. The account is square with the ex-slaves. 
Not exactly, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes in this article. Having been enslaved for 250 years, he goes on, black people were not left to their own devices. They were terrorized. In the Deep South, a second slavery ruled. In the North, and here we're talking about some of those predatory practices and many others, legislators, mayors, civic associations, banks, and citizens all colluded to pin black people into ghettos where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. Now we have half-stepped away from our long centuries of despoilment, promising never again. But still we are haunted, Coates writes. It is as though we have run up a credit card bill, and having pledged to charge no more, remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. (laughs) The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. The article goes on to describe what the interest of that balance looks like in America today about the current situation, which we sometimes call the achievement gap or the income gap. It actually describes um, what's, what's known as ecologically distinct black neighborhoods. That is, all across America in cities around the country are communities that are overwhelmingly African American, overwhelmingly people of color, where the indicators of poverty, unemployment, incarceration rates, crime, all of those are so dramatically different from majority white communities, two times, three times as much, that they're essentially different cities. They're ecologically distinct in sociological terms, dramatically different. And then one of the things it talks about as well is the idea of building wealth, the financial safety net, which is completely different. It's one of the things that those predatory mortgage practices and then being unable to get bank loans has done for people of color over centuries and over decades, that even if you make a certain amount of money, you aren't able to build the same kind of wealth family to family. And so what we see then, as Coates writes, as a rule, poor black people do not work their way out of the ghetto. And those who do often face the horror of watching their children and grandchildren tumble back. I would add to this that there is a legacy of violence at the hands of the state, which is in some places still inflicted daily on America's people of color. You might have heard about the recent uh, uncovering of the Florida police using actual photographs of young black teenagers for target practice. And, uh, and across the country, it has, this legacy has created an atmosphere of deep mistrust, rooted in historical experience and now taking on a life of its own, a life where people of color highly doubt that the state is there to protect them. That mistrust, it seems, is an important part of the picture and the legacy here. Coates goes on in this article to talk about all of the ways over the decades and over the centuries that that um, laws have been put in place the way the federal government has been unable to offer equal treatment. As he writes, as late as the mid-20th century, this bargain, equal fealty, and equal treatment was not granted to black people who repeatedly paid a higher price for citizenship and received less in return. One of the key things for me about this article in The Atlantic, something that I I knew or had learned intellectually before but hadn't um, absorbed in quite the same way, 
is how much America's creation from its very start was predicated on having an underclass permanently. How much what we know as the American dream and the American promise always assumed a permanent lower class, not just in the South, not just on the plantations, but all of America. As Coates writes, America was built on the preferential treatment of white people, 395 years of it. Vaguely endorsing now a cuddly, feel-good diversity does very little to redress this. And there, I think, is my struggle with how we celebrate Martin Luther King Day sometimes, when we focus on inclusivity, on diversity, on the possibility of the dream, we shift attention away from the important reality of different experiences over history and now. This is the danger of focusing on the part of King's speech that paints a picture of the ideal without remembering to listen for the parts of the speech that paint a picture of what life is really like, a picture of where we are now and how we got there. Again, in Coates's words, to ignore the fact that one of the oldest republics in the world was erected on a foundation of white supremacy, to pretend that the problems of a dual society are the same as the problems of unregulated capitalism, is to cover the sin of national plunder with the sin of national lying. The lie ignores the fact that closing the achievement gap will do nothing to close the injury gap in which black college graduates still suffer higher unemployment rates than white college graduates, and black job applicants without criminal records enjoy roughly the same chance of getting hired as white applicants with criminal records. President Johnson knew this. In one of his more famous speeches, he wrote, uh, he said, Negro poverty is not white poverty. Many of its causes and many of its cures are the same. But there are differences, deep, corrosive, obstinate differences, radiating painful roots into the community and into the family and the nature of the individual. These differences are not racial differences. They are solely and simply the consequence of ancient brutality, past injustice, and present prejudice. The article posits that the achievement gap, the income gap, the inequality that we see today didn't come out of nowhere Indeed, it came very specifically out of our country's history and policies. Unless you think those history and policies are completely gone, although we have had, for sure, legislative successes in the last 50 and 60 years, the article ends just kind of heartbreakingly with conversation about the recent home mortgage crisis about Wells Fargo's practices of predatory mortgages, which were specifically targeted to people of color. There was an outreach campaign to African-American churches with the idea that if a couple of leaders in those churches took on these mortgages, others in the church would want to as well. The language used in internal memos at Wells Fargo and Home Country Loans is appalling and abhorrent. So we are not done. We are not done. And even if we were, even if there weren't Wells Fargo still preying on people of color in particular and with intention, even if we didn't have that still, where we are today is so dependent on where we were then. 
there's a, a great image that speaks to the difference between equality and equity. I didn't really know this difference before I saw this picture, and it's been really helpful to me. You know, we think of equality as what we want, right? Like everybody should just have a level playing field. Well, here, you have to imagine this image. You've got three kids. Imagine three of our kids here, right? A little one, and then a mid-sized one, and then a tall one. And they're trying to see over a fence to see the baseball game on the other side. And so, with equality, they've got a level playing field. You all give them a little step up, a little bench to stand on. And that works great for the tallest one, and the middle one can just almost see over the fence. But the little one, our little three-year-old, just can't see at all. Equity, this image would posit, means that you give the tallest one perhaps a small step up, and the middle one a little higher riser. And then the littlest needs quite a tall riser to see over the fence so they can see the baseball game on the other side. Equity versus equality. That's the basic concept in some ways behind reparations. And what reparations might look like are different We don't know because we haven't had a national conversation about it. I didn't know this either. A bill every year has been introduced to the House about reparations. It's it's actually not a bill that suggests anything except talking. (laughs) It's a bill that suggests studying the situation, H.R. 40. It's called every year it doesn't even get onto the House floor. We won't even talk about what it might mean. And I think in some ways, part of what Coates' article suggests, and I believe, is that the simple fact of having the conversation, of doing the study, is a step in and of itself. Being open to and aware of the reality that there is a conversation still to be had. That it may be that one bench doesn't get us all seen over the fence to the baseball game. Coates puts it this way, he writes, and so we must imagine a new country. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. Won't reparations divide us, Coates asks, not any more than we are already divided. The wealth gap merely puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in its distribution. What is needed is an airing of family secrets, a settling with old ghosts. What is needed is a healing of the American psyche and the banishment of white guilt. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about, Coates writes, is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. I think that reckoning is possible if we are willing. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen or have plans to see the movie Selma, which I hear is quite wonderful. I was reading an interview with Bill Moyers about the movie, who loves it and recommends it, but notes that they got LBJ wrong, <laughs> President Johnson, not quite right, that, that President Johnson, in fact, was much more in support of some of the movement forward in this country. 
What I loved about that interview with Bill Moyers, though, was that was this one phrase he said. He said, you know, even though that piece is wrong, go see the movie anyway. It's good, he said, to be reminded of a time when courage on the street is met by a moral response from power. A moral response from power. That, I think, is what we are called to do. Those of us who are white have a moment to respond with deep morality today to act against preserving the status quo, against, in some ways, our own self-interest, if self-interest is preserving privilege, preserving difference, a chance to insist on the dream, on the table of brotherhood and sisterhood and personhood, a moment if we are ready to take it. All of this, of course, is in the context of the last months in America, the Black Lives Matter movement. A Methodist bishop who writes every year a letter to Martin Luther King on his birthday wrote this year, starting by saying, the last 50 years have showed us how far we have come, and the last 50 days show us how far we still have to go. I've heard it said, too, have you ever wondered what you would have done if you were alive during the civil rights movement? Now, I want to note that some of you don't have to wonder that. (laughs) Some of you know what you did and may hold that with deep pride. And maybe some of you are ready for a different chance. Well, if you ever wondered what you would have done, the question goes, this is your moment to find out. Now, not everyone, I recognize, will be happy with this conversation, if we have it. Coates writes, perhaps after a serious discussion and debate, the kind that H.R. 40 proposes, this bill that never makes it to the House floor, we may find that the country can never fully repay African Americans, but we stand to discover much about ourselves in such a discussion, and that is perhaps what scares us. The idea of reparations is frightening not simply because we might lack the ability to pay. The idea of reparations threatens something much deeper, America's heritage, history, and standing in the world. Not everyone will want this conversation. I think about that King quote, one of the radical ones, that the oppressor never just gives you your rights. The oppressed have to demand them. But there's something important there, I think. There's something about staying connected in the conversation, something that King did remarkably and beautifully well. You all know sometimes I talk about self-differentiation. It's like my favorite word ever. You know, it's the practice of being able to stand where you are and say what you believe and do so while staying connected to the person who believes differently from you. Not walking away from the table, but staying connected and in conversation. Not being walked over, either. I think that's so important in this conversation. It's important in this community, where surely not all of us have the same opinion on this. I promise. And it's important nationally, as well where surely not everyone has the same opinion on this. Indeed, opinions that diverge dramatically. I'm thinking about our platform speaker last week, Daryl Davis. So many of you wrote 
really having appreciated his message, his message about coming to the table of brotherhood, which he has surely done in a significant and courageous and committed way. And I wonder what role we have to play, ethical culture as a movement that encourages hard conversations, a movement that creates space for people of all beliefs, what role we might play in this national conversation. Right now, much of that conversation nationally is centered around police violence, around the experience of communities of color with the police and with the state. And it's being had in many ways on the streets and also in lecture halls and in D.C. council chambers and hearings, which some of us have been to in this community and congregation. We are having that conversation. And right now, the conversation is in many ways antagonistic as far as police forces are concerned. Not all of them, I want to note. You might have read articles about the work done by the police chief in Richmond, California, and the response of the police in Nashville, Tennessee. But I wonder how might we play a role in setting the table for some of those conversations to happen? How might we help people to stay connected while being clear about their positions? Being clear about the rights that they demand. There is a call, I think, in this for us as a nation to come to terms with our history, to recognize that the system that created racism is the same system that created America. I invite you to engage for one way of doing that with our film festival here, the Created Equal Film Festival. You've got a flyer in your program over a series of Sundays. We'll be showing films starting with sharecropping, started, well, historically starting earlier than that, starting with the Freedom Riders and Freedom Summer, going through sharecropping, back to the abolitionists, and the loving story, films that tell us about our history and then speakers and conversations to follow, coming to terms with the story of our country in its fullness. And there is, I think, a power and hope in facing reality. I think about family secrets, which all of us have, right, in our families. And I think about the pain of learning those secrets and also the power of learning them, of finally understanding more fully why our family acts in the particular way it does, understanding more fully who we are in the family as well and what that might mean for our nation. We have, I think, in our country a desire for something different. That's why we celebrate the dream speech, why we celebrate Martin Luther King Day. We want to get to that dream world. We want to get to the table of brotherhood. We talk sometimes about race relations in America, wishing that we could find a way on a societal level and on a personal level for those relations to go better. I have to say, I loved what the comedian Chris Rock said 
about race relations. You might have seen his interview in Vulture magazine. Here's the thing, said Chris Rock. When we talk about race relations in America or racial progress, it's all nonsense. There are no race relations. White people were crazy. Now they're not as crazy. (laughs) (laughs) To say that black people have made progress would be to say they deserve what happened to them before. But still, I think, I think there is a hope there. There's a dream in how we approach it, even if it's not always the right way. I think about that ideal of colorblindness. Many of us were brought up with that as children, that, that our goal was to be colorblind, not to see color. And, and we know now, many of us, or we come to discover, perhaps, perhaps our friends of color share with us, that the problem with colorblindness is that color does exist out there in society. The problem with colorblindness is that it ignores the different experiences that we have of reality, real and true experiences. But at the same time, I understand why we're drawn to it, you know, We want a society where we could be colorblind. We don't have it. And in some ways, of course, too, we never want to erase the differences in a way that erases identity, right? Our color is part of our identity, part of who we are. But but what we yearn for there, the reason that we go to that place, what we yearn for is the dream to come true, What we yearn for is the table of brotherhood, that we can come to it together. The problem is the table isn't set yet, or our chairs are different heights, and we can't all get there. So part of the question is how we set it, how we begin the preparations for King's dream. This month, we are looking at the theme of worth and dignity, a theme that's woven all through King's work. The dream that King had is a dream of a world where all people's worth is honored, the content of their character, right? Where all people fully inhabit the dignity of their human lives. It's a dream where the world is set up to truly elicit the best, of every person, as we say. It is, in some ways, that dream, that world, is the ethical culture that this movement was founded to foster, the ethical culture out there in the world. And what I would posit is that part of honoring someone's worth is noticing when it's not being honored, when it has been ignored and trampled on, and what that means for them today. Part of creating an ethical culture out there is repairing the world enough that it's even possible to elicit the best. And I do believe we have an opportunity. Frankly, I always believe we have an opportunity. You know, it feels like a particular moment, but there's never just one. There's never just one decision point. But we have a chance to be part of a dialogue here and nationally about how to create that world, how to have King's dream be real or at least really possible, (laughs) how the table might be set. And the way to get there is to see more deeply the reality of how it has been set. 
of how high our chairs have been. It's a painful reality, and yet we are so much stronger when we know our own history, our shared history as a country, and then so much more able to envision a new one.